Hey, we ready to dive into God's Word? Communion table set for us today as well as a response. Um, again, at Crossroads, uh, this is the meal that Jesus gave to us. He not only wants us to hear the gospel and know the gospel, he wants us to eat it, to appropriate it in our lives. So at any time today, if you're a Christ follower, if you want to get up and take communion, um, to appropriate it, take it in, uh, please do. Luke, (laughs) a great text today, a story we're all familiar with, maybe one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Again, I know there's been a little stand up, sit down, stand up, but we stand for the reading of God's word, so please stand. On one occasion... Some of your versions say a lawyer. Some of your versions say an expert in the law. Um, I'll explain that. A lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, rabbi, he said. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the Torah, Jesus replied. How do you read it? How do you make sense of it? How do you interpret it? He replied... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, right answer. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, let me tell you a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was when he saw him. The Greek word is splagsomai. refers to your guts being torn out. His guts were torn out. And he went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for extra expenses you may have. Sir, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is our word for today. You may be seated. I've noticed that uh, some of the most well-known stories are also sometimes the most misunderstood stories, and I think in some ways that's the case with this one. But before we get there, let me just start with the context in which uh, this, this, this popular parable is told, what, what, what the impetus is behind it. It starts with this lawyer. And we think a lawyer, we think, a guy, we think of a guy with a $5,000 suit who drives a BMW. Okay, that's not this guy. 
This is a man who is an expert in Torah, the law. Remember, the law in, in, in Hebrew is the word Torah, and the word Torah is their word for God's word. So this guy is an expert in God's word. And he doesn't just know it because this guy knows it backwards and forwards. But he doesn't just know it so he can know it. He knows it so he can walk it, so he can live it, maybe teach it, certainly pray it, and hopefully one day die it. And in all of this, what he's hoping for is that the kingdom of heaven would explode all over his life. That's this guy. He comes to Jesus with this question, what must a man do to inherit eternal life? Now I want us to know too what this man is asking. A Jew is not asking, how is it that I may get in with God? They are already assuming that. We are God's chosen people. Now you can debate that, but that's how they understand it. So this, this, this guy is not asking, and you, you'll see this also in other phrases in the Gospels, like being saved, eternal life. I mean, these things are, are talked about. They mean something very different than what they mean to us today. Because I think what we think that this guy is asking when they're talking about being saved or inheriting eternal life is, how is it that I can go to heaven when I die? But what you need to know is they're not thinking about the future as much as they are the present. And they're not thinking so much about a place that's up there, but what what can happen down here in this life. In fact, if you read the Gospels carefully, you're going to see that Jesus, like all the people of his day, use phrases like being saved, eternal life, interchangeably with the kingdom of heaven. It's a synonym. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's God's reign and rule that comes in great power to bring shalom to chaos. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, by the power of God, then you know the kingdom has come upon you. The kingdom of heaven is what Jesus announced wherever he went. It's that message that God's reign, his rule, is breaking in to redeem and restore the world. And, and we see in the Gospels that the kingdom of heaven is more than a message because as the king of the kingdom, Jesus unleashes this reign and this rule in the here and the now. It's the lame walking. It's the blind seeing. It's the deaf hearing. It's the captives being set free. So I want us to see this because so often I think we think of the kingdom or eternal life or being saved strictly in terms of some otherworldly, futuristic place where we go when we die, but for the people of Jesus' day, being saved and eternal life are synonymous with the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is this whole new dimension of life that we experience right now. It's harmony and peace with God right now. That leads to life everlasting. So Jesus, what must I do To inherit eternal life. What must I do to have the kingdom of heaven, God's reign and rule, just be unleashed upon me? And what's Jesus' answer? Look at the text. 
He says, well, what's written in the Torah? What's written in God's word? How do you read it? How do you understand it? In other words, what Jesus, too, is getting at is, for us, this would be like him saying to us, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? For this man, it's getting at, what does it mean to be a true Israelite? And the man's answer to Jesus' question is what? Shema. It's to love God with everything I have. And to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says what? Now that's not how you inherit eternal life. Now he says right answer. Do this and you will live. I want to stop right now and ask, does that shock you? Does Jesus' answer shock you? Let me repeat the discussion. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer, keep the law. And do this and you will live. And it's this Greek word zoe for life. It's, it's not the word bios. Bios is biology. It's it's. It, It's life in terms of existence. But zoe is this life, life. It's life in a new dimension. Do this and you will live. Now this isn't the only time this question is asked of Jesus. You can go to Matthew 19, verses 16 to 18, and someone asked Jesus the same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you're going to see Jesus gives the same answer. He says, keep the commands, keep the law. And as I was thinking about this this week, it made me um, just reflect on the fact that I think Christians in the law, we, we have such a negative attitude towards the law. We, we, we think of it almost as death. But even Paul in Romans 7 says the problem isn't with the, with the law. The problem is with us. He says the law is holy, spiritual, and good. I once heard Tim Keller tell, tell this story about this little kid who, who wanted a pet. And he begged his mom, Mom, please, 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 would you please get me a pet? And finally his parents gave in and they, they got him a goldfish. <laughs> Poor little kid. But uh, anyway, he gets his goldfish and, and, and one day he comes down from his room crying his eyes out with his mom. His mom says, what's, what's wrong? He said, well, I started playing with my fish and he was jumping all over the place. But now he's just laying on the floor, like not moving. We know that God made fish for a certain environment. The moment you take a fish out of its environment, it dies. It's it's the same way in which God made the world. He, He made the human heart. And he knows the perfect environment for the human heart to thrive and to soar. And what is that environment? It's Torah. It's his laws. That's why you have Psalm 119 where the psalmist says... Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law, to the Torah of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. This word blessed means deeply satisfied. Deeply satisfied is the one who keeps Torah. Um, he, He goes on. I mean, this whole psalm is about Uh, delighting and meditating upon and seeking God's law. 
Because as God said in Deuteronomy 30, he says, here's the choice. It's between life and death. If you want life, obey me. And if you want death, disobey me. And here's another thing that we just need to know. To the Jews of, of Jesus' day, Torah, God's law, was more than just Ten Commandments. In fact, in the first five books of Moses, they identified 630, 613 commands, and, 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 and they saw these commands as the way to experience the abundant life. And so one of the great debates that's going on in Jesus' day, it's, okay, are some of the commands more important than other commands? And the big debate of Jesus' day is, is there a greatest commandment? Is there a core commandment through which all the other commandments can be understood? In fact, this question is asked of Jesus. Someone uh, later in Jesus' life, they're going to come up to him, they're going to ask him this question. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What's Jesus' answer? Shema. He says it's to love God with everything you have. And he says in a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And for the longest time, this second like it, I just thought Jesus was putting his spin on, on the greatest commandment. He was adding this piece. But he's really quoting Leviticus 19 verse 18, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And see, a lot of Jews put Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, with Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. They put these together and said, this is the greatest commandment. The Pharisees especially said that. The guy in our text just said it. The reason why they could do this is because textually, they share a very unique Hebrew word. Ve'ahavta which is only found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19. Ve'ahavta is the unique Hebrew word, which means you shall love. So when Jesus says, and a second is like it, he's saying these two verses have like words. And because of that, they are like in terms of importance. It's the greatest commandment. In fact, Jesus says the whole law hangs on these two things. I know what some of you are wondering. Some of you are wondering, like, oh, man, this is all this law stuff. And why all this debate, asking if one commandment is, is greater than another commandment, or if one commandment is the greatest. I'll tell you why they're asking this question. is because obedience to God and God's word is incredibly important to them. And they're not just looking at the bare minimum of the Ten Commandments. They're looking at all 613 commandments that they find in Torah, and they are striving to know them so they can obey them. And what you, what you realize, and we realize it in our own lives, that there are certain situations that arise where two commands can't both be obeyed at the same time. I mean, one of the ones that we debated at Wheaton College when I was there is if you're protecting Jews in your house during World War II, and a Nazi SS officer comes to your door and says, are there Jews in the home? Are you going to protect life? Or are you going to lie? What do you do? We debated this. I couldn't believe that people would say I'd hand them over. Why would you hand them over? Because I don't want to lie. 
anyway. <laughs> and I know the debate would go on in here if we threw that out there. But the reason for the debate is because obedience to God is important. And so this whole group of people called the priests of Jesus' day, loving one's neighbor to them was not nearly as important as the kosher laws, the laws about how to be clean and pure before God. Those laws were much more important than loving our neighbor. And that's why Jesus is asking this man, well, how do you read it? What does it mean to be a true Israelite? And here's the deal, both this man and Jesus agree to be a true Israelite means to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what I also want you to notice from our text is that this conversation from Jesus and at this point is over. But this man, the text says, feels the need to justify himself. See, this is the problem with the law, not the law, with us trying to keep the law. We can't do it. So while Paul is right when he says it's good, holy, and spiritual, at the same time it condemns us. We can't succeed in doing it. We fail over and over again every single day. And the humble realize this. But the way then that you can make yourself feel like you're obeying the law is to take the standard that you can't reach and you lower it. And so the way you do this in this situation is you redefine neighbor. What, what is it? Who's my neighbor? So this too becomes a big debate in Jesus' day. And so you have some Jews like the priests and Levites who say that my neighbor is my fellow countrymen. It's my people. I am to love people who are just like me. To other Jews, like the Pharisees, neighbor was broadened a little bit more to include people not like us, the Gentiles. Because in Leviticus 19, not verse 18, where it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but in Leviticus 19, verse 34, it says, and you shall love, it's that word ve'ahavta, one more time, you shall love the stranger, the foreigner who lives among you. But again, for the Pharisees, it's still only Gentiles who are a part of us. And here's what we need to know as we look at this text. There's one grouping of people in Jesus' day who every Jew couldn't stand. They had nothing but contempt and hatred for this group of people. Who is it? Samaritans. This was, this was hatred that was religious it was hatred that was racial. It went both ways. It wasn't just Jews who hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. So Jesus tells this parable. To answer this question, who is my neighbor? He says, a man traveling the Jericho road. I have a PowerPoint of this, so you can just imagine this. You see a road there? You gotta look really closely. 
This is a 15-mile road from Jericho to Jerusalem. It goes straight up uh, about 4,500 feet because Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level and Jerusalem is at 3,500 feet. So within 15 miles, you're going up 4,500 feet through desert. The road is that little path right there. That's the biblical road. Let's see if we have another uh, picture to show the road close up. There it is. It's about as long as, it's about as wide as this part of the stage. So listen to the text. It says of this man, he falls into the hands of robbers, he's beaten. In fact, no one's surprised by that because to travel the Jericho Road in Jesus' day was a dangerous thing. This happened quite a bit. A priest comes by and it says he passed by on the other side. (laughs) Think about that. He almost has to climb over the guy pass them. Why did this guy not help him? I'll tell you why. It's because the Bible told him not to help him. Numbers 19 verse 11 says, no Israelite was allowed to touch a dead thing. And see, that's why this little detail in Jesus' parable is important about this man being half dead. Because touching dead things made a person unclean. And we read this and we roast this priest for not helping this guy left for dead. But he's obeying the Bible. He's commanded by God to not touch anything that is dead, even if it's his mother, his brother, or his father, or his wife. And so the, the, the audience of Jesus' day, as they're hearing this, are probably thinking to themselves, wow, that must have been really hard for him that day. Because touching this man, helping this man, would make him unclean. It would disqualify him for a week of serving in the temple. And again, if you asked a priest, how do you read Torah? He would say, Shema is most important. But what about loving your neighbor as yourself? He'd say, no, 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 no. That's further down the list. What's more important is purity. Is that I remain personally pure. That is more important than loving my neighbor. Now, I'm not trying to defend this guy in any way, but, but I'll put it in our world. How many of you think laws, how many of you think being personally pure is more important than loving your neighbor? Or let me put it this way. Let's say, I'll take a character out of late Miz, Cosette. She gets to a place in life where the only way she can put food in her baby's tummy is by prostituting herself. What's more important? Personal purity or loving my neighbor? And how do you feel about her for prostituting herself to feed her baby? See, that's the question. And if you think then about a priest's calling, their calling was to be pure before God because their calling was to also make people pure before God and clean before God so they could approach God. A priest approaches this guy. I'm sorry, a Levite. 
What does he do? He does the same thing. He does the same thing because he's in the same boat. Levites are the people that serve the priests in the temple. They are the ones that carry out all the sacrificing and do a lot of the touching and, 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 and cleaning up of, of, of the people. The praying, all of it. He is obeying the Bible as he reads it. Now, in my opinion, what the people expect to hear next is, and along came a Pharisee. And I know what Christians think. A Christian thinks if a Pharisee came along, he'd come and look and make sure no one was looking and kick this guy down the ledge. Who we want of? Unless this guy was clearly a Samaritan to a Pharisee, a Pharisee would have stopped and helped this guy because Pharisees saw loving God on par with loving my neighbor. They're one and the same. But to their utter amazement, Jesus says, and along came a Samaritan. Oh man, where's the story going now? And see, they already know that this Samaritan is risking his life just by walking on that Jericho road because that was a Jewish road. And tell me, what is the Samaritan's Bible? It's Torah, first five books of Moses. Same book. And as Jesus tells what the Samaritan did, I think it was to their amazement. This Samaritan... This enemy, this half-breed, this man who's practically a subhuman, the worst of the worst, he sees this man left for dead on the road, and his heart splogs so high. It's cut. It's bleeding for this man. And to them, it's like he throws his theology out the window, and he touches them, and touch, 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 carries him, helps him, bandages him. Now, what is Jesus' main point? Well, first it's this. If we're going to follow him, then we need to read the book the way Jesus reads the book. That vertically loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and horizontally loving our neighbor is what it means to belong to him. It's at the heart of obedience. And we don't obey to be saved. We obey because we are saved. And that we cannot say today, as followers of Christ, that I love God, but I hate my neighbor. Or I love God, but I hate my enemies. In fact, the way that we're most going to love God and show our love to God is by loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's why Jesus tells the whole parable in Matthew 25. He says, whatever you did to the least of these, whether you clothed them or fed them or visited them when they were in, in, in prison, whatever you did to them, you did to me. 
And see, what I've noticed, and this is probably an overstatement or overgeneralization, but conservative churches typically are all about personal purity, personal holiness, and really not that concerned about social justice. Liberal churches, on the other hand, are all concerned about social justice, but personal purity and personal holiness don't really matter. What's Jesus? He's both. In fact, he can't imagine one without the other. He can't imagine that you can actually love God with everything you have and not love your neighbor as yourself. Or that you can't love your neighbor as yourself and not love God with everything you have. He can't imagine it. However, if he's going to lean one way, at least from reading his text and his teachings, it's towards his disciples helping those in need. It's the very reason why he raised us up, why he cleaned us up. Not so we can sit in some prayer closet, isolated from the world, but so that we can engage it. And where our world is in pain and our hurt, there is Christ through his body, his church. Read the Gospels. Look at church history, the times when the church has been most potent. It's when it's doing both with great zeal, when it's loving God with everything it has and when it's engaged in the world, especially where the world hurts, and it's, it's their loving neighbors. In fact, the early church did something the world had never seen, I don't think, up until that point. The world saw people taking care of people, but it was Romans taking care of Romans. It was Greeks taking care of Greeks. It was Jews taking care of Jews. But when all these plagues and earthquakes hit, They saw Christians caring for everyone. Which means if we are Christ followers, we can't just pass by people who are in need. I don't care who they are. Not if we're following Christ. Now this is a lot for us to think about. But it's still not the main point of the parable. Because what's the question at hand? What is it? Who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this story, and then what's the question he asks at the end of the story? Just look at your Bible. He turns to the lawyer at the end of this and says, Now you tell me who was the neighbor. And this guy probably just mumbled up, well, the one who had mercy on him. Who? The one who had mercy on him. Who? He can't even say Samaritan. He can't even say it. Do you see what Jesus just got him to say? He just got this guy to say, my neighbor is who? Samaritan. Go love even the Samaritan. In other words, go love even your worst enemy, the people you disgust the mo- who disgust you the most, the people who you hate the most. I want you to love them because even they, they're God's image and are your neighbor. 
And see, what he just did is he just took Leviticus 19, 18, and where the priest made neighbor this big, and the Pharisees made it this big, Jesus just made it big enough to include every person on the face of the earth. Every person is our neighbor. And what obedience to God's law looks like is to love. Not just those who love us, but Jesus says, you've heard that said. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your neighbor and love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you and bless those who hurt and mistreat you. Now, I know this. I know everybody who heard Jesus tell this parable this day heard exactly what Jesus was saying. But did they hear and hear? How many that day went home to reconcile with someone that they hadn't talked to in a long time? How many went home that day to a son or to a daughter or to a parent or to a sibling or to a friend or a boss or maybe even a spouse and had some conversations? Or how about us? How many of us will hear this story today? And how many of us will hear and really hear? How many of us will go and do likewise? Because here's the deal. To be a part of Jesus' kingdom, if we want his power and his rule and his kingdom to break out all over our lives, we can't leave here today without making a commitment to ve'ahavta, to loving God with everything we have, and to loving our neighbor as ourselves, which includes everyone on the face of the earth. And this may take the form today of some of you doing some serious forgiveness. Maybe someone's hurt you. Maybe someone's offended you. Maybe someone's slandered you. Jesus says love them. Love includes forgiving. Maybe some of you right now, people are coming to mind right now, people who have mistreated you, maybe even abused you in your past. Jesus says, pray for that person. Bless those people. Because there's nothing more God-like, there's nothing more Christ-like than when we, when we love people in this way. And, and this kind of love not only profoundly changes the world, but it profoundly changes us. But here's the question that I ask when I hear this. How do I do that? And I know I need so much more than just a set of prescriptions or a technique or a how-to. I need a power to come in my life. What's the power? Well, like I said with all good parables, you've got to find your place in the story. Let me ask, as you read the story, who are you? And I know right now I will never be the good Samaritan until I first realize that I am the man in the ditch. Because as the man in the ditch, I can't justify myself, I can't fix myself, I can't heal myself. I need a rescuer, I need a savior, I need someone greater than myself who can come into my life, come into my heart and make this right. And we are living in a world today that when people are in ditches, the world just passes by. 
we have the ultimate good Samaritan, Jesus. Who as our great high priest, he saw us in our helpless, dying, broken, sinful condition. And his heart bleated for us. And instead of being a high priest who avoids the unclean, he comes and he touches us. He touches us. Touch, touch, touch. He touches everything that is unclean and in so doing makes himself unclean. He pours on us the oil of his spirit and the wine of his blood into all of our wounds. In fact, Jesus became the guy in the ditch to get us out of the ditch. He was beaten. He was stripped, left for dead. But by his wounds we are healed. We're made whole and clean. The last thing I did to wrap up this sermon is I got a little scared about this word ve'ahavta. I was like, man, what if this thing is really found all over the Bible? So I did a word search. You know what? Ve'ahavta is found in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's found in Leviticus 19 verse 18 where it says, ve'ahavta, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's found in uh, Leviticus 19 verse 34. You shall love the foreigner who resides among you. It's found in two other places. Jeremiah 31. Verse 3. Where it says, I have loved you. This is God speaking. I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's God saying, I shall love you. With an everlasting love. Which means when we're in the ditch, or when we fail, or when we make a mess of our lives, he ve'ahavta, he loves us. I've loved you with an everlasting love, and I've drawn you with unfailing kindness. Chesed, mercy. And you know the other place where, where ve'ahavta is found? Micah 6 verse 8. But this is what the Lord requires of you. That you do justice. And you ve'ahavta mercy. You love mercy. Why? Because God's a God of mercy. And he showed us mercy. And we now are to show mercy to the world. Let's pray. God, as we prepare our hearts to eat this meal and that you feed us because of your great mercy, while we are yet sinners, our lives in the ditch, you died for us. God, you also say that... um, You command us to make things right with our brothers and our sisters before we take our gift to the altar. Before we do the vertical thing with you, you want us to have things horizontally right with other people. And so maybe that's the best thing that could happen this morning, God, is that even before we take communion, that we would think of people in our lives that we need to make things right with. God, would you do your merciful work right now and push that into our hearts? And may we be obedient to you. 
In Jesus' name.